0: Welcome to another episode of Beyond the Surface. I'm Brian Levinson. I created this podcast because I love talking to interesting people to find out what their story is and how that story has developed their mindset for performance. Really excited today to bring on one of my good friends, Martin Bahar, onto the Beyond the Surface podcast. Martin and I go way back. We went to elementary school together and played a bunch of sports. We played baseball. We played soccer. But our real passion back then is is still one of our big passions today, which is basketball. So the two of us played basketball for a bunch of years, uh, and then Martin actually went to a different school as he'll tell in his in his story and he went on to play some high school ball uh, and then got into the coaching world so he was a manager at, at Vanderbilt University for the men 's basketball team, and then he went on to be a graduate assistant at Georgetown and then Basketball has taken him all over the country, so he spent time in Connecticut, in New Jersey, and now he's out in Los Angeles working with USC, University of Southern California, and their men's basketball program. Martin is somebody who I've always bounced ideas off of as I've started my career, where I work predominantly in sports, and we have often had many conversations about what it takes to be a great coach, how do you build culture, what do you do to build an identity as a team, Uh, And I've really been fortunate to have Martin in my life because he's somebody who we can talk basketball all day, uh, but we also love talking about human development. And Martin is a coach who really cares about building relationships, as you'll hear throughout our conversation today. And he's also a, a pretty resilient guy, and he'll talk about some of the adversity that he has faced throughout his life and throughout his career. So Martin is just a great human. I truly believe he's a special coach, and I'm just fortunate to have him in my life. So I figured he'd be a good person Uh, to share with the world and share with you guys. So without further ado, I'm really excited to present Martin Bahar on the Beyond the Surface podcast. And as we go beyond the surface with Martin, and we do go beyond the surface, I encourage you to go beyond the surface with yourself as well. Martin, thanks for coming on the podcast today. We got you in person. I do a lot of these over Skype and FaceTime and have to deal with technology. So I'm excited to have you back in your old stopping grounds. Uh, Martin was saying as he pulled up that this is actually, my office is actually where his dad's office was. So I'm sure he's having some memories of coming in and and seeing dad. And what was was it like for you sort of walking in here? Any nostalgia for you?
1: Uh, Lots of nostalgia. Also lots of fear, you know, thinking I had to get my tetanus shot again or a couple of those other shots. You had the flu shot you had to get here. Uh, my dad worked here for well over 30 years, as one of his offices, so it was really exciting to come back, park across the street, and come on into the Bethesda Medical Building.
0: Well, I'll promise not to you know, give you a shot or, or do anything crazy, I might kick you under the table if you say something stupid, <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll keep it clean. Um, so Martin, what we're doing with this podcast is really finding out people's stories. Um, so sure. our story actually... Um, coincides a little bit. So uh, for those that don't know, Martin and I grew up together basically in neighborhoods next to each other and went to elementary school together and played basketball, baseball, some soccer. But basketball is really, I think, both of our passions from a young age. Um, and I'm going to tell some stories about Martin as, as he gets going on telling his story because I'll give my <laughs> perspective, which is going to be fun because I haven't done this podcast with someone that I've known for as long as I've known Martin, so uh, I'll, I'll, I'll add some color to his stories and see if he actually does remember what he was like when he was a kid, but bring me to your childhood. What was childhood like for you? What was life like for you uh, down off of Glen Road and, and going to our elementary school?
1: Sure, yeah, born and raised in uh, Potomac, Maryland, and uh, my family, myself, um, uh, my parents, my older sister, my late older sister, Madeline, and my younger sister, Claudia grew up in Potomac, Maryland, went to Geneva nursery school and then to Wayside. And then all of us went over Falls road to Bullis school for, uh, the majority of our elementary into middle school, into high school careers. So,
0: all right. So before Martin goes on, let's just, I want to go to elementary school. So yeah.
1: here's the deal with Martin
0: that you got to know. And I'm going to, I'm going to bring back some memories from Martin. So, we started playing basketball in third grade and we played on this just lots of who it was it was just a uh, a dynasty of a basketball team we three-peated third grade fourth grade fifth grade of course uh we were we were the monsters of potomac maryland which is, is, is not anything that anyone will really write home about but martin came in in third grade wearing the cardboard like shorts that they would give you so this rec league they gave you these awful shorts it wasn't like n one mesh shorts or anything like that and martin would come in rocking those and martin was a little pudge ball man no doubt he was he was a chubby little guy and martin third grade was not very good at basketball and tell me if i'm wrong about any of this but fourth grade, he'd come back, he'd be a little bit better. Yeah. Fifth grade, he'd come back, he'd be a little bit better. And <laughs> like sixth and seventh grade, Martin turned into a freaking monster. And like, like he was always like a pretty good rebounder and could play defense and hustle. No one ever doubted his effort. But the skill necessarily wasn't there as third and fourth grade. But what would you do in the summertime working on basketball? Because... I'm telling you, every year Martin would come back with like a little mid-range game. Right. He'd, you know, ball handling, and all of a sudden, by the time we got to like seventh grade, like Martin could ball. Like, what were your summers like for you uh, when you were growing up?
1: Just, just lots of analytics. <laughs> yeah, That's just it. data, no numbers. Just, just re- crunch the numbers yeah. of my game. Now, you know, I, I loved basketball at a young age. Really was drawn to it, and I, it was practice. It was, it was blue-collar, old-school. A lot of time on the black top. Uh, a lot of time with friends outside. A lot of times playing a lot of older... I vividly remember in elementary school playing middle schoolers and middle schoolers playing high schoolers. And, you know, the traditional way of getting better in anything you want to pursue, at least athletically. You know, I always felt as though if if I played against older guys, tougher, stronger, more experienced over time with, you know, individual work on my own, that I would get better. You know, and, and in third grade, you're not really thinking about getting better per se you're just pursuing something you're into and basketball was one of the greatest interests of my life at a young age certainly played uh, soccer and baseball later on in middle school and and at Bullis played lacrosse and played that through high school but really loved basketball pursued it practiced a lot you know I watched a lot of um you know I, I watched those old NBA tapes of course you know the highlight tapes the championship tapes, whether it was the Lakers or the the Pistons of the 80s, then the early 90s with the Chicago Bulls. And then, you know, as a young kid with your imagination, you try to emulate things. You try to do what you see your idols doing. And I kind of just kept working. And then, you know, sixth grade, you know, things started moving in the right direction.
0: Yeah, Martin turned into a nice power forward. I mean... Neither one of us were the tallest dudes on the planet, but Martin was a solid power forward.
1: And it, was, it wasn't a, this, this face-up stuff either. It was, <laughs> it was back to the basket, we're going to bump, and I'm going to get an angle, and I'm going to use that backboard.
0: Yeah, he had, he had some old school in him. And it's funny you talk about tapes, because I remember being at Bullis Basketball Camp, which is where you went to school and where I went to camp in the summer, and they showed a, a tape of Isaiah Thomas playing on a sprained ankle. And that was
1: always, and by the way, the old Isaiah Thomas, not the new Isaiah of Thomas. Of course. Who uh, played on a spray ankle? Uh, I guess one game, and then they had to shut him down this year, right?
0: Yeah, the the new Isaiah Thomas. Yeah, the new one. Yeah, yeah. But the year. old one. You know, he played fourth quarter. I think he dropped like twenty three points hobbling or something. Hobbling around, hobbling around, and that stuck with me. I'm like, all right, that's what I want to be. Sure. So I was that little shit that would just run around and, and try to be tough, even though I was a tiny little man. Um, but so you you go off to you go to Bullis, which is right down the street from both where where we both grew up, and that's where I passed maybe. Went away for a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was high school like for you? Because I wasn't in the building with you anymore. Sure. Uh, I didn't get to see it. Uh, talk about that experience for you. Uh,
1: I, we had a great experience at the Bullis School, my entire family. Obviously, Dr. Dick Young was the headmaster at the time. Um, I came up through middle school, so an element, you know, tail end of elementary school with a lot of the same friends. So we had a good group, a good support system in place there. Obviously, I had an older sister, younger sister, And our families really just enjoyed the entire experience at Bullis. Um, In high school, again, you know, pursuing sports, which is common among young people at at different high schools, public and private. Had a great high school coach, Mike Hibbs. Um, He ran the camps that you attended when you were younger, but really enjoyed the overall experience at Bullis. and, And Mike Hibbs was a big part of that. You know, in the summers, we were working his camps, then playing summer league. And then in the fall, if you weren't playing a sport, you were working out for hoop and then getting ready for the season. And he had a whole college basketball experience in place in high school. And I really appreciated that because, honestly, if you love basketball, if you're a basketball junkie and you want to pursue the game – um, he was the perfect high school coach for that. And obviously we had a great group of players from across the D.C. area, Maryland, into northern Virginia as well. So a diverse group of ball players from across the DMV who were really talented at a time before AAU was really popular in the summer. You know, in AAU now you get that experience of people from different regions. At the time, you know, you really had to go to private school to get that experience or at some of these um, the shoe camps from, you know, the 80s and 90s, for example.
0: And was high school the first time where you had thought about coaching? Did that come into your mind at all when you were in high school and experiencing that with Coach Hibbs?
1: Yeah, so uh, our high school teams were great. I, mean, I played with seven, eight, nine Division One players, really enjoyed the competition every day, and then obviously you go to the games, and uh, you know, a lot of times practice was harder than the games. Uh, Coach Hibbs really brought out my passion for coaching, Uh, I loved how he ran his program, the organization, the communication, the accountability, uh, the togetherness. And it was a year-round. It wasn't an experiment. It was a year-round philosophy. Uh, We were always a part of the program the moment you came into the program. And there were rules and regulations. There were a lot of tough times, but there were a lot of great times, too. And I really felt the value being on a team because I wasn't the most talented player uh, in the program, as a junior, as a senior, I was a captain, certainly. I was a really solid role player. But when you're playing with a lot of talent, you know, one guy uh, played football at Syracuse. Another one played basketball at St. Bonaventure. Drake, UNLV, uh, Navy, American. We had all this talent, all this Division one talent, and I was the role player. And that's kind of where I developed my voice because I was a captain. Uh, I had to be an organizer. I had to get our team in line. And that kind of helped me develop my coaching voice, which I use today. And it was not as the best player. It was as the guy who was kind of just trying to right the ship if it was ever bumpy.
0: And I want to walk back a little bit. So you mentioned your family. So talk about what life was like for your family. What were some values that were instilled in you? I know you're tight with your family. Sure. It's a special group of people. Sure. Uh, just talk about that dynamic and growing up in that house and what that was like
1: for you. No, my, my, my parents uh, two people who always stressed education, who always stressed accountability, and they really wanted us to pursue our passions while at the same time Handling our academic very seriously, and you know myself, my sister, my young younger sister as well, very academically inclined. Historically, um, we took our academic seriously, and I think you know as I tell recruits now. You know, if you don't handle your academics, especially early in high school, early in life, those things can haunt you later on. So, if you want to be recruited at a later age, well, if you mess up as a freshman and sophomore in school, that goes towards your core GPA. Then you can't get eligible, and then you can't play college basketball where you want to play. But anyway, uh, academics were definitely stressed at a young age. Uh, my dad and my mom have very feel-good personalities. My dad's very outgoing. Um, he's an Iranian who uh, moved to the United States in the 60s, studied medicine in Switzerland, then came over here. My mom was born and raised in the D.C. area. Uh, She was a nurse. She eventually went into landscape artwork. And uh, it was very much um, a very pleasant upbringing and one that was very um, enjoyable on multiple levels. And we also have a very international family, and I think that was very important for us. You know, we valued other cultures. We valued... Um, different experiences, not your traditional just vacation experiences, but history, art, culture, from different societies, different countries, and having an international family. I really feel as though I was very lucky to get that multicultural experience, especially at a young age.
0: Would you say you're more like mom, more like dad? Where would you find yourself on that spectrum?
1: My wife tells me I'm more like my dad. Yeah, You know, whiny sometimes, (laughs) very outgoing personality. You know, our youngest daughter, Lila, who's 13 months now, she she kind of has uh, shown some of that personality as well, but you know I have a good sense of humor, and my my father has always been the life of any party, and my dad's great because he's very you know, he speaks seven languages. He can tell you know the hardest thing to do is tell jokes in other languages. That's one thing I always say. He's able to do that. You know he's got this big personality, great sense of humor, and it's in Farsi, English, Spanish, Italian, French, and you know it's it's it's, it's kind of fun to just watched my dad grow up, but now my wife tells me I'm more and more like my dad, which uh, for better or for worse, I guess, it's genetics.
0: So you, you mentioned academics being something that you care about, and um, look, I, I'd imagine that's how you end up at Vanderbilt. Sure. So uh, you you go to Vanderbilt, which you know is the SEC school that really values academics, right. maybe that doesn't always help them so much in uh, football, uh-huh. um, I've been to a Vanderbilt football game, um, but what was life like for you at Vanderbilt? I know you got into basketball sure. there as well. So talk about that experience being at Vandy.
1: Yeah. So, I, you know, I was a Division three level basketball player. Um, I went to visit Vanderbilt as a normal student, loved it, uh, reached out to Brad Frederick, who's an assistant coach at North Carolina now and a good friend now since 2002 once I started. And I worked for the team as a student manager while at Vanderbilt. And I really wanted to stay around the game, stick with my passion, um, All while going to Vanderbilt as a student. And I really got the best of both worlds while at Vanderbilt. Definitely a different world. You know, I didn't... A lot of my friends really didn't go very far from home for college. Good schools academically, but primarily in the Northeast. Uh, Vanderbilt was a 10-hour drive in Nashville, Tennessee, from Potomac, Maryland. And the heart of country music, which, you know, the only four years of my life I ever listened to country music were in college. But certainly culture shock in a lot of ways. Different. Uh, I adjusted fairly well because I feel like my personality transfers to different regions. and to Do you different feel go- like
0: you're a chameleon, like you can adapt to whoever, wherever,
1: whenever? I, yeah, I just think I just I've always had a personality that's been accepting. so and I don't view it as being a chameleon per se. I kind of view it as. Um, I'm a good person with a good sense of humor and an open heart, and I kind of want to interact with others um, with different stories and be accepting of them. You know, our friends at Vanderbilt, you know, my friend group, obviously the basketball team, that was its own entity, but even my other friends, very unlike the rest of the Vanderbilt campus. You know, we weren't the... uh, the preprius, the, you know, there's a, there's a tint of New England, um, affluence at Vanderbilt as well. A lot of the prep school kids came to, to Vanderbilt and a lot of, you know, wealthy Southern kids went to Vanderbilt. You know, my friends were, were kind of different than that majority at Vanderbilt, but we still, uh, you know, a Cuban American friend of mine, Luis is from Miami and then Joe Urso from Staten Island. And then my boy, Chris Copeland, who's from Gaithersburg came down to, uh, Vanderbilt with me. We just had a good diverse group of friends who, uh, you know, fit in well, and we're really liked, but we're also different. And I think that's important.
0: Diversity is a word that gets thrown around a lot. Uh, what does that word mean
1: to you? I, I, I feel as though years ago, it just meant racially. Now, to me, it means uh, different thought processes, different backgrounds, different belief systems. You know, I think it's really important to to get a greater understanding of the world, you have to surround yourself with people who don't view the world the way you do. And honestly, that transcends racial lines. And um, it can be from different cultures, different religions, obviously, but even different regions of the world or of the country itself. Um, to me, diversity is diversity in thought, most importantly. You know, why do you view the world you do today? And I think it's also important to be open to change your views um, with education or enlightenment. I think that's very important. And
0: how do you embrace diversity of thought? And I'm going to go to coaching for a second. Uh, So I think with coaching, one of them, we hear all the time, you just need to buy in, right? Like you're not bought in. Mm -hmm. You just need to buy in. And like, there's some surrender that comes with Mm -hmm. buying in.
1: Yeah.
0: How do you balance the idea of buying
1: in with also appreciating diversity of thought? Absolutely. Well, you, um, I like the saying I, as a coach I don't have to treat everyone equally but I have to treat them fairly and I think that's important um, you know Jason Hart who's one of our assistant coaches he's brilliant um, played at Syracuse played in the NBA 10 years it's really opened my mind up to different things and different concepts in basketball he always talks about how you know we didn't raise the young man we coach you know we recruited him and he came to our school we don't know his background so you can't And this is where coaches get into their most trouble. When you're very stubborn with a philosophy or or a way of speaking to people, um, you can get in trouble. Uh, Kids are different. Uh, We don't know the parenting structure. We don't know who they were raised with. We don't know their siblings. You know, we know who they are when we recruit them, but we weren't. We're not there every single day to know how they're spoken to or how they accept teaching. You know, that's kind of something you have to figure out as a coach now. If you talk to every single kid the same exact way, you're assuming that all their experiences are the same, which they're not. You know, messages are received and understood differently by different people. So it's just really important to me that, especially with this modern generation of athlete, you have to speak to them the way that they can most accept the message and then implement it so that your coaching can pay off in terms of strategy or helping them get better and be the best they can be.
0: There's so much good stuff there. So I love the phrase and it's similar to the one you did what you said which is uh, hold everyone accountable treat them all differently. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you have to be able to still you don't let go of your values and the things that are your non-negotiables sure. but you still need to understand like well maybe this guy needs a kick in the butt and this guy mm-hmm. needs an, you know an arm around uh, their shoulder. And I think the best coaches back up one step from that and they really do cultivate relationships, like you said. So you might know who the mom is, or who dad is, or who grandma is, or who their high school coach was, or their AAU coach, so you might know the people involved, but you don't know the story, necessarily. Um, And the story is their story and their perspective. It's one of the reasons I love doing this podcast, because you're someone who I know very well, but I don't even really know your story. And so one of the things I love doing is finding out what is their story? And I've been amazed at every level, high school, college, and pro, because I play in all three sandboxes, mm-hmm. how few coaches really know their player's story. Right. And it's one of the things that I do when I work with teams is I want to find out who that person is. Before we even talk about confidence or motivation mm-hmm. or focus, I need to know who, who they are and who they want to become and who they are becoming because right. those are different things. Um, but back to the diversity of thought, Concept, I thought you said that beautifully. Um, And I agree with you. There is diversity within religions. Mm -hmm. There's diversity within ethnicities. There's diversity within gender. Mm -hmm. There's diversity within generations. There's diversity certainly within races. Mm -hmm. So um, I love the way you put it, which is where I hope we can go with diversity, which is this value of diversity of thought. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what that looks like and who that looks like should matter far less than the thought and Same. the appreci- appreciation of diversity of thought. And I think about the best teams and organizations I've been involved with, and it it is and it usually tends to be the ones that value diversity of thought thought and create a culture where that diversity of thought is appreciated mm-hmm. and, val- and and like valued so that that thought comes to the forefront and isn't buried or stifled right. because it's the way we've always done it. So when I hear like it's the way we've always done it and that's the way to do it, right. maybe it's me as a millennial and if mm-hmm. people want to label me, they could say I'm a millennial or maybe it's because of the way I was raised. But like I think that you always want to be – contrarian when you hear that this
1: is the way we've always done it so that's the way you're going to do it. Well as a leader, as a coach uh, for example, any any decision you want to make you want to just make sure you have all the intel all the information, all the knowledge you have leading up to making that decision that's the way, and, and you know I think one of my strengths is I'm very much forward thinking, you know I try to look at what decisions are we going to make why are we making those decisions, okay what are the results of those decisions and that, that seems like a lot but if you make a habit of just accepting information, accepting different viewpoints, and then trying to navigate your ship in a certain direction based on that information, I think that's important. You, we, everyone's goal-oriented. Um, most differ- most, people. most people are. Most people are goal-oriented. How can you get to that goal? Well, you're working with an organizational structure where different people can provide input that maybe you're not even thinking about. Maybe... My assistant coach's strengths are my weaknesses. So can, can we mold that together to go in the direction, as the head coach, I want the ship to sail in? And I think that's important.
0: I had this thought the other day. is It is amazing how many head coaches hire people that they just know. right? And they don't even take the time to circle the wagons and see maybe there's somebody who comes from a different background and a different yeah. system or a different culture and they may add something that i otherwise wouldn't have known um so i look at a lot of the best rosters and and when i say rosters i mean coaching rosters and a lot of times you'll find that they have great assistant coaches who come from completely different backgrounds right. and I, once again i'm not talking about it from a racial standpoint i'm talking about that could be one piece of it mm-hmm. but let's call it 10 or 15 buckets of what makes our identity uh, they have diversity of thought in there and I just think it's such an interesting thing um, the other thing I really like that you talked about and then we'll go back to Vandy and find out about your journey mm-hmm. is the idea of like no I'm not a chameleon I'm, a, I'm my authentic self sure. I like to think I'm a person of character right. most of the time at least yeah. I try mm-hmm. to be not to say we're, we're not flawed we are all flawed in some capacity but I think that's another good point which is like you're going to be you, you value your upbringing, you value right. who you've been around, you value um, the international spice that is the Bahar family and <laughs> And, um, you know, that's just a part of who you are. And I think the word that I would put around all that is you're inclusive. Mm, sure. um, so yeah, you want to be inclusive and bring people in rather than be exclusive and shut them out. Um, which actually leads me to this question. How do you handle athletes who want to be exclusive rather than inclusive?
1: Yeah, it's uh, it's difficult. Um, I, there's so much that goes into the modern athlete now, which really wasn't around 10, 15 years ago. Start um, with social media. Social right? media for sure. You know, everyone's a superstar and it starts in high school, even junior high school now. People are writing about kids at a young age, and we're retweeting it, and they're getting attention, and they're getting ranked. And, you know, a lot of kids get this false sense of self and security, and, and, and in a lot of ways... They value themselves based on the mentions or the likes or the retweets, and we
0: all do that, right? Like, yeah, sure. we're no different. Like, right. if if I, for example, this podcast, like right. we're gonna we're gonna do this, right. and then hopefully you'll tweet it out, and I'm hundred thousand views. Yeah, we're gonna get a million views. Yeah, there you go. and like I'm gonna be stoked by that. Sure. So. So I, I just, I didn't mean to cut you off, but no, I think it's worth mentioning because like I was at lunch today with a guy and he was talking about this generation and this, that, and the other. I go, look around the room right now. How many people have their cell phones on the table right. at lunch? And how many of those people are not millennials? Mm-hmm. And all of the adults had their cell phones. So we're all, I think, addicted to that dopamine hit of the likes, the retweets. Uh, I, I, I I don't think it's exclusive. Now, to your point, they're growing up with it. So okay. it is... It's embedded in them at 14, 15 years old, right. uh, and that is different. Um, but I do think it's a societal thing that we have to just be so much more aware of. Like um, I've started to really cherish those moments where I put my phone in my bag, mm-hmm. and I just say, all right, I'm at lunch with you. Right. Or if I'm in a hot tub right, right. or in a pool. Those are great moments because I literally, I'm just not touching the phone. Yeah. And I think we have to carve that space out for ourselves. And I'm sure, are there times at at USC where you guys say, hey, guys, put your phones away? Do you guys ever do that or
1: not really? We we definitely try to encourage it. You know, just kind of do something else. You know, there's so much. It's amazing. how such a small thing like the phone. We're a slave
0: to it, man. Yeah.
1: You can get so much attention for yourself or your craft, for your, your talents now. You know, it's not just sports, right? Music, acting, um, it's really incredible. So you have to kind of just break away from it for a while, put it down, relax, take a breath, maybe read a book and envision things instead of just watching things. You know, there's a difference between watching something and envisioning something. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important that guys get a break at some point from just, you know, digitally based media or attention, social media and so on. Yeah,
0: imagination, creativity, innovation, like those look, we can take in so much information, like there are crazy stats on how much more information we take in today compared to 25 years ago. I have stats up on my wall, and we can look at it. Uh, Like, we take in here, we take in five times the information that we did in 1986, right? right. 30 years ago. We take in five times, so that is an amazing gift, which we get all this info and content, but it's also a curse because we don't have time to sit with our own thoughts, learn how to deal with our thoughts, learn how to be with our thoughts, Um, and I think that's where the mental game becomes so valuable because if we can learn how to do that and add in the ability to gather information, uh, it's massive. Because I think Twitter is an amazing tool.
1: Informationally, it's incredible. Oh, my God.
0: I'm so much smarter because of it. But if I stay on there and not create – if I'm not creating and innovating, I'm also running into trouble. Absolutely. All right. I want to go back to Vandy. So uh, you're there. What led you to really reach out and become a manager? Because, look, being a student manager for a college basketball team is not – uh, the most glamorous, absolutely not job on the right, planet. Yeah. And you're at college. You're at a great university. You're sure. at a fun university. Sure. You're in an amazing city. Um, I would think most people would go to a school like Vanderbilt and be like, "All right, there's beautiful girls, there's good weather, and there's great academics. Sure. Not a bad choice, Mister Um What leads you to decide to be around a bunch of smelly clothing and, yeah. and sweat <laughs> and, and work with basketball players?
1: Well, I, you know, like I said earlier, my high school coach was a great coach, really. Motivated me to to want to reach my potential in the coaching world. And so my avenue to getting into coaching was essentially being a manager at Vanderbilt. That's being in practice every day. You know, you're partic- partaking in practice on the court and drills and such.
0: But the vision, Nor- you have a vision then of I want to be a coach.
1: Right. My vision then was I want to be a coach. I'm going to grind this out for four years. From here, I'm going to go to grad school and be a grad's assistant, and that's going to start my coaching career. And
0: in your mind then, is it I'm going to be a college coach, MBA coach, high school coach? Did you have any of that? or is My I passion want was
1: wanting to be in college coach. College coach. Yeah, love my high school coach. Not a huge high school coach passion for me, though. You know, I wanted to be a college coach.
0: Okay, cool. Yeah. Sorry. So I interrupted no, no, you. Okay. So, so you're, on, you're on the floor with these guys. Sure. You're interacting with them. Uh, what, what was that experience like besides that?
1: It was a great experience. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a day-to-day grind in a lot of ways. Obviously, not from the sense of you're practicing every day, but you're available and around every single day uh, during practice hours, rebounding for the guys at other hours and such, and working out with them later as well. Um, so it was, it was a lot, it was a huge time commitment and, you know, it was great for me because I had this chunk of time every day. I knew where I had to be in between classes and it helps you stay organized academically as well, which I think is really important. But, you know, you get this great experience where, you know, in 2004, we go to the Sweet 16 and it was the first time Vanderbilt had gone to the Sweet 16 since, uh, the early nineties. So we had this great moment where Matt Frije led our team, who was drafted later on by the, uh, I think it was drafted by the Heat and then signed with the Hawks and led us to the 2004 Sweet 16. We beat Julius Hodge at NC State in the final seconds, eventually lost to the, the, the eventual champion, UConn, who was led by Emeka Okafor and those guys. So, But, you know, that moment, you know, is the only time we went to the NCAA tournament in my four years, it was 2004. But it was an incredible moment, which kind of, you know, even though we only went to the NIT the last two years, it really just the memories from that one season and of course 4 years for sure but you know that one season where you're part of history at a school like Vanderbilt is really special you know going to the sweet 16 being with a team which you know really struggled the year prior and we had we had four seniors on that team who really rallied our roster that summer going into their senior year they were none of them were top 100 recruits out of high school they're all very good tough you know, more of the role-playing genre of, you know, college basketball athletes. Friji ascended throughout his career. Then, you know, the rest of the seniors were solid, good role players and high-character guys. And they really rallied the troops going into their senior year. Uh, we got off to a great start. We started 13-0. and We beat Michigan and Indiana in the early season. And that that faith and that belief really grew within the roster, which was fairly young after those four seniors. So... We really played great throughout the year. We were led by great leadership. And for me, as a, as a young manager working for that team, you saw the importance of in-house leadership and in-house policing of a locker room by the student athletes. Hmm. You know, when you have guys who are committed to not just winning, but doing things the right way, competing daily, uh, competing for a cause greater than themselves, it makes everything much easier as a coach because you know that the guys are doing all the little things they need to do before game time in terms of preparing themselves and holding each other accountable. And then once game time starts, you know, you trust that, you know, your practices and your camaraderie is going to carry you over the top. Any
0: idea how that was cultivated?
1: I just think we had, you know, in terms of those seniors that year, you know, Scott Hundley, Russ Lakey, Matt Fregi, Martin Schnedlitz, just really high-character guys, so by the time
0: they're seniors, they're saying, this is our team. And they took longs. Yeah, they really
1: struggled a couple of their seasons. You yeah. know, they they had two tough, pretty bad seasons, and they had one pretty good season and then one amazing season. And that amazing season came when they were seniors, and they rallied around Matt Fregi, who was a stud, and, and they were really tough, competitive, and they held the team accountable.
0: You know, I had an NBA personnel tell me this. Uh, when Wisconsin went to the Final Four with Bo Ryan, a couple years ago, the NBA guy said, Brian, I went to practice. The coaches weren't doing anything. It was literally the players were basically running the practice. They knew exactly what they are supposed to do. They knew how they were supposed to run it. And the players were running practice. He goes, I've never seen anything like it. It was uh, like completely player-driven. And I think, to your point, that's when you know that a coach did a great job, Um, is when they can sit there and let the players... Run it. And that's not to say that the coach isn't valuable, but the coach's value is in cultivating that. Mm-hmm. Um, people think that coaches need to be micromanaging every little thing. No, they need to empower. And I think it's the same thing for a great CEO. Like if a great CEO is going to micromanage everything, then his his employees, his or her employees, are not going to be empowered to go take action themselves. Um, so it's just a. A great story that stuck with me, and it sounds like Vanderbilt was the same way. Um, i got to share a quick anecdote about Martin that is relevant to this part of your life. So a couple years ago, it's probably more than a couple, but uh, was probably, now that I think about it, it's probably like nine years ago, mm-hmm. Martin and I went to the Portsmouth Invitation. And um, for those that don't know, the Portsmouth Invitation is a basketball uh, showcase for seniors in college who... Are trying to make it professionally, so um, they go to Portsmouth, Virginia, which is not near really anything. Uh, It's about how long? How long was their drive? Like three, four hours? Yeah, it was quite quite a while. Marty and I got lost
1: a couple times, so it got up to about you know five hours. I remember.
0: Yeah, I kept getting lost so I could spend more time with Marty. Um, (laughs) And so we get down there and we walk into the gym and there's a six foot eight, athletic, long dude. Uh, and we walk right in the gym, and we're literally under the basket, and the guy goes, "Martin," And he goes and shakes the guy's hand, and he goes, what's up, Tamari? And uh, it's Tamari Carroll. And so Tamari Carroll ends up, I think, being a late first-round pick in the NBA, and sometimes in the Portsmouth uh, invitation, they get late first-rounders, and sec- a lot of second-rounders, a lot of guys end up playing overseas. But for those who don't know, Tamari Carroll is still in the NBA, playing for the Raptors. He's now, you know, he's been a starter. He's He's a great basketball player. But Damari, I think, went to Vanderbilt for a year or two years? Damari
1: was there for two years. And And then then transferred to Missouri? Transferred to play for his uncle, Mike Anderson, at Missouri for his last two years. So he sat out one and played two years after that.
0: But here's why I bring up this story. So Martin's a manager at Vanderbilt and interacts with a freshman or a sophomore, Damari. And we walk in the gym years later, and Damari immediately recognizes Martin. So my question to you is, how did you cultivate the relationships then Mm -hmm. when you're at the bottom of the totem pole? Like, you know, it's one thing for the head coach to walk into that gym or an assistant coach who recruited him to walk into the gym. But here is Damari, who you're the manager of the team. Like, let's just get this, let's make this really clear. Yes, you're on the court with these guys, but you're also doing all kinds of stuff, right? Laundry, sure. um, figuring out logistics. I mean, the managers of, of basketball teams, they are in the weeds doing monotonous, boring, ugly, dirty, small work. Um, how did you cultivate a relationship with someone like him? Or, you know, I know I talked to Matt 3G years later. Mm-hmm. He had a relationship with you as well. So these guys who, who could have big egos, who could be exclusive, mm-hmm. um, uh, you were able to bring them into your, your space or your world. Can you give us, paint some color around that?
1: Yeah, I, well, you have to be an accepting person. I'm, D- Damari was, uh, was a kid from Alabama, um, great kid. It didn't work out at Vanderbilt. He transferred to Missouri. It really worked out, even though he was going to be great at Vanderbilt. He wanted to go play for his uncle. He had a great career. Now he's a um, multi-multi-millionaire, and he's he's having amazing success, and you know, the funny thing about him is he kept getting better, too. You know, he didn't stop getting better. And, you know, he came into league as an energy defensive guy. Now he's an energy defensive guy who makes threes. And that kind of changed the complete trajectory of his career. But, and at Missouri, he played point forward for Exactly, them. right. And he wasn't, you know, shooting that many threes. And that and that's okay. Uh, but back to Damari being accepting, different guys from different parts of countries. You know, you spend so much time day-to-day with guys when you're in the locker room with them especially over the course of a college basketball season since that's the longest season of any of the college sports it's really important that there's camaraderie and there's character in that locker room now Damari, you know one thing i'm really thankful for for that vanderbilt staff you know we had a lot of really good guys and coming to work as a manager is really fun every single day when there's good people around there's hardworking people around and there's people who love the game And there's ups and downs like any single locker room. There's nuisances and there's issues that you have to handle and deal with. But when there's a high character in the locker room across the board, you know, those little things, they never really keep eroding the the product and the camaraderie that's already existing. You know, is just a great guy with a big personality, and I was the same way. Got it. All
0: right, so... You graduate Vandy and you decide to head up at, back to your old stomping grounds and head back to Washington, D.C. Yeah. Uh, take a job as a grad assistant at Georgetown at a really interesting time to be at Georgetown. So, Amazing. So, talk about that experience. And, uh, you know, I know a little bit
1: about it, but uh, give me the inside out version from, from your perspective. Sure. So, so, Georgetown, I was working their summer basketball camps networking, um, you know, my junior and senior year of college. Um, became close with the director of basketball ops at the time, Matt Henry, and proposed the idea of possibly coming to grad school and helping the team out And uh, when I was in grad school, and they, they pretty much told me from Coach Thompson to third down, you know, just get into grad school and we'll talk. Um, I don't think they were expecting me to get into grad school, and as it turned out, midway through my senior year of college, I got in, reached back out to them. Um, and that they, old
0: academic thing kind of worked out. Well, you, well, Mom and dad were right.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, coach, and that's why i preach that to everyone. You know, coach Thompson III had never had a graduate assistant his first four years at Georgetown. Wow. And so, um, cause,
0: cause of that, they can't get kids in there that want to then work on
1: basketball. Yeah. Right. You know, you have to have a really you know, good GPA. You have to knock it out of the park as an undergrad and then, oh yeah, you have to be crazy enough to want to coach basketball. Right. So I got in, I helped them run the camp that summer going into graduate school. having no clue clue if I was actually going to be a part of the program. And as it turns out, I did a nice job helping them run the camp that summer. And at the end of the summer, Coach Thompson brought me in and offered me a position on his staff as a graduate assistant. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get a scholarship to go there. So it it worked out completely better than I could have ever imagined. You're back home, you're at Georgetown, and Georgetown's on the rise. You know, Jeff Green and Roy Hibbert, John Wallace – those guys were coming off a really good sophomore year and you know were very much trending upward. You know, they lost to Florida in the Sweet 16 the year before. Uh, expectations were high. A very nice team with a good balance of upperclassmen and talented young freshmen. I'm thinking DeWan Summers, Jesse Sapp, you know, really good players who could really contribute down the road and immediately. So got to Georgetown, started my graduate school in communications, and pretty much was doing what I was doing at Vanderbilt, around the team every day, partaking in practice, and had much more responsibilities day to day in terms of, you know, the recruiting on campus, uh, the mail-outs, the social media, the video and scouting, breaking down teams, oppositions, plays, personnel, doing all the little things necessary, you know, game to game to do what we can to help the team win in my position. So I was really fortunate that all that work I put in in college, Working their summer camps led to this opportunity when in grad school, where I could go to Georgetown and they're rising as a program under Coach Thompson III, who's a terrific basketball mind, person, and coach. And then it, it went upwards from there. Yeah,
0: and once again, like I know all, a lot of those guys that you mentioned at Georgetown, I've interacted with just being local and uh, being connected to the NBA and, and some other places. And once again, like if I bring up your name to them, they all, you know they remember you like there is a relationship with these guys um so I think it speaks to how much you value relationships and how inclusive you are and uh being aware of how to meet people where they are because all those guys are different they're different kind of cats like like we're saying they all went to Georgetown this prestigious academic university but also this prestigious basketball university um and I just think that's that speaks to who you are and, and what you're about um but you're their junior year mm-hmm. was a pretty special year. Am I right about sure, that? Yeah. So talk it about first
1: season. Yeah, going to the Final Four. Um, was that the Final Four year? The Final Four year, two thousand seven. Incredible how things just. Uh, who was it? Ron Burgundy and Anchorman. Things escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, we really got hot midway through the year. Completely in sync, uh, Jeff Green. You know, kind of like Free G at Vanderbilt. Jeff Green was incredible. He was the biggest player of the year that year. Roy Hibbert was an unstoppable center. Uh, John Wallace was an elite shooting point guard. And then you had Jesse Sapp, Dewan Summers, and Patrick Ewing. You know, that was our core. And really tough, really versatile, and really in sync. And it just shows you, you know, we look at these teams that make Final Four runs historically, and a lot of times it's the Blue Buds. Obviously, they're the most talented they usually have some of the best coaches. Um, and, and so, But you get hot at the right time, things can escalate quickly, and, and you think you're unbeatable. So we head into the Big East tournament, capping off a regular season championship. Um, we beat Villanova in the first round in a game we were up big, and then they chipped away, made it close, but we grinded it out. Second round had a terrific game with Notre Dame. Uh, Russell Carter was incredible. They they fought back. It went back and forth, but Jeff Green took over. Uh, then you play in the championship game against Pitt, and we played incredibly well that day, won the biggest championships, cut down the nets at Madison Square Garden in 2007, and you're looking back, you're like, oh, my goodness, I was standing on the court at Madison Square Garden, cutting down the nets like I had actually something to do with what happened on the court <laughs> as a graduate assistant. But the point is, you know, they got in sync, we rallied, you know, around Jeff Green, who was just such a special player, and he's lasted in the NBA to this point. Roy as well, and we, and they were just likable, high character guys, and I just think winning with character is it's so important. You establish success on the court, but then these lifelong bonds are formed and. You know, I just I think about Jeff and Roy and John Wallace, Patrick Ewing Jr. I still talk to all the time. I think about these guys all the time, and it was an incredible run. So you take that Big East Tournament Championship, you've won the Big East Regular, you've won the Big East Tournament, and you head to Winston Salem where you play in the first round against Belmont, beat Belmont, have a really tough game against an incredible coach Al Skinner, Boston College, um, Jared Dudley was on that team, Tyrese Rice was special player as well grinded out a win, and it was ugly. We had a lot of ugly wins, and I know Golden State now, everything's so pretty, and it's beautiful, and the shooting is impeccable, and the talent's amazing, but we had some ugly games in that Big East, and then, you know, in the tournament, you know, you play Al Skinner, it's never going to be pretty. We grinded out against them in Winston-Salem. The next week, you're on cloud nine, you're back in the Sweet 16, and Uh uh-oh, you're playing your alma mater, Vanderbilt, in the Sweet 16. And so that was an emotional week for me. You're playing against all the guys you worked with the last several years at Vanderbilt, and they're older now. And you play them in the Sweet 16 in the midst of an amazing year with you know Derek Byers was on that team. He's playing in the big three, Ice Cube's new three-on-three tournament. Uh, Shane Foster, Dan Cage, really good team. And then Jeff Green gets the ball on the block, takes a dribble middle, spins baseline. A lot of people from Vanderbilt thought it was a travel. Nobody from Georgetown thought it was a travel. He banks it in with two seconds. They chuck it from half court for the win. They miss it. And next thing you know, you're in the Elite Eight. <laughs> and that was you know, that was incredibly emotional. I still think about that handshake line. You know, I had tears in my eyes. You know, we won, but I'm shaking some of my best friends' hands. Dan Cage, I'll never forget, you know, Derek Byers who you know, played in the NBA for just two games, but he's one of the best players I've ever been around. Mm. Uh, you know, Derek Byers was special, and he's still a special. He's played in Europe all these years. He was a D-League All-Star. Uh, but, you know, going through that handshake line after an emotional win against your friends, that was unforgettable. And that I wasn't I wasn't really excited that day. You know, I was kind of was just like my heart was beating out of my chest. I was anxious. And, you know, we beat Vanderbilt that day, but it, w- it wasn't the, fun, the most fun I ever had on the court. And then you play... North Carolina in the Elite Eight, and we went on a late run, and John Walls, your boy John Walls, made a big three, went to overtime, and then we cruised in overtime, heading into the Final Four. So, you know, you think about all those experiences. It starts with character, it starts with kids with great work ethic, and it starts with just the belief and, and the trust that great teams have individually with one another, and then obviously coach player player, coach, which I think is really important as well. You have to have that trust that your coaches can handle things and they can put you in the right situations. But then as a coach, you also have to trust your players that, you know, you have to let them, you know, they're the star of the show. They're the actors. We're the directors. You know, they're the actors. You have to let them shine and have some freedoms as well.
0: I want to try to connect the dots a little bit because – You talked about that Vanderbilt team being special because of the leadership and those guys really holding each other accountable. And I had John Wallace on the podcast, so he shared some of what he thought the secret sauce was at Georgetown. One of the things he said was like, you know, John, Roy, Jeff, all those guys came in not as five-star recruits. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you talked about being an underdog in your life. And, you know, and we talked about growing up, like basketball, you just got better every year, got better, and you sort of never thought you arrived. Uh, did both of those teams have a little bit of that, I don't want to call it an underdog, maybe a chip on the shoulder, um, but it sounds like the work ethic was just there mm-hmm. for those teams. Uh, a, is that accurate? And B, is there anything that you felt like the coaches did to cultivate that for both of those teams?
1: Yes. So you're 100% right. You know, I talk about my 2004 Vanderbilt squad and then the 2007 Georgetown squad. Chip on the shoulder teams. Didn't have top 50 recruits in the program. But those specific classes, there weren't high elite level recruited players. Free G was recruited at a high level. Um, Jeff Green late was. Roy was a project. John Wallace was supposed to go to Princeton until Coach Thompson third decided to take the Georgetown. Job. And he walked on. And he walked on his first year, which I don't, obviously that slips my mind because I wasn't in the program then. But yes, John Wallace, one of the best point guards, best shooting point guards I've ever coached was a walk-on at Georgetown, and he's an incredible player. I, so. I love this because we have become more
0: infatuated <laughs> with rankings um, of course. and evaluations and... Right we often lose track of the descriptions of who the person is and how that person is doing what they can to get to where they want to go.
1: Well, recruiting analysts and and message board culture, that's another season in itself now. And so that's that's the direction college basketball has gone. And it wasn't that way. You know, rankings were prevalent. Um, The internet rankings and recruiting services and recruiting analysts, it wasn't as big. And message board culture just wasn't as big as it is now. But you have the basketball season now, but then you also have the recruiting season. And so it goes back to we're talking about the young young kids nowadays. You know They're being ranked and they're being talked about and they're being mentioned year-round. And that does have a, a positive effect, but also has a detrimental effect sometimes on young people. But when you talk about great leadership from those two teams, which I was lucky to be a part of, they didn't have that so-called gas behind them. They didn't have that hype. What they had was... Um, a lot of heart. They had a chip on their shoulder. They had great work ethic, and they were great people. Mm-hmm. And they figured it out, and they wanted to be great. And it's still possible now. You know, you, you see a lot of teams in college basketball who've gotten better quickly. You know, I think about Virginia Tech, Buzz Williams. Like, he's done an amazing job there in just three years. I mean, they, they made the tournament in year three, and he's always taken pride in under-recruited kids. You, you think of Jimmy Butler, um, Wes Matthews. Lazar Hayward. Lazar Hayward. All these great players he had at Marquette, uh, under-recruited. Jay Crowder. Crowder. And you have to respect that. Um, And they aren't the highly rated kids. They're the chip on their shoulder kids who are very competitive. I think that competitive gene is important. And on that 2007 Georgetown team, those kids were really competitive.
0: Competitive gene. Do you think it's a gene? you think it's something that's cultivated, nature, nurture? Where do you stand on that?
1: I think the special ones, um, I think that's nature. I mean, just the guys, the Kobe Bryants. You know, that's that's him. That's who it is. There's raw, no, authentic. Raw, so. authentic. He wants to win at everything. You know, obviously Michael Jordan. They talk about a lot. Um, there are some kids now who, who I think they don't, they don't know what it means to be competitive day in day out, minute in minute out, uh, practice in practice out. Um, you have to cultivate that sometimes, so that as a college coach, at least when they're in year three or year four, if you're lucky to have them um that they're you know they understand what it takes to be really good because you can have a really good freshman year and average 5 points per game like our kid at USC Chimezi Metu averaged 6 points per game as a freshman and then this year um, was the Pac-12's most improved player was second team ball Pac-12 and averaged 15 and 8 as a sophomore he'll be drafted next next June and as a junior he's going to graduate in 3 years and he will be drafted but you know he he had a pretty good freshman year and only averaged six points you know and so so sometimes you just you know you just gotta get better and you gotta understand that it's a process with those things
0: i heard this great line in a book i'm reading they said nurture your nature right so simple and I, i i stand on the on the side of i think we all have certain dna that we are wired for uh and then it's our job to nurture whatever it is that's our strengths and mm-hmm. to nurture whatever our weaknesses and try to turn them into strengths. So I think at the end of the day, a coach's job is to find those people who love to compete right. um, and, and maybe not only love to compete, but also love to figure out problems and uh, go toward challenges and, um, you know, you could say it's grit
1: or whatever it is. Don't make excuses. Right. They go
0: to, toward solutions mm-hmm. rather than excuses. You do your homework on those things and then you bring the right people on the bus And then you have that bus that's cultivated uh, with a culture of, you know, we want you to be your authentic self. We want you to compete. Uh, When we're in practice, we're on it. Uh, You need to go to class. Whatever those things are that are non-negotiables for a coach and a staff, uh, I think it's there. But, yeah, I think you need the right people on the bus. And, you know, yeah, there's an old saying, it's easier to slow a fast horse down than get a slow horse going. Mm -hmm. And I think that is true. And so, like, sometimes – Let's just use Draymond Green because it's easy and everybody knows who he is. You know, it's a fast horse that you sometimes need to slow down. Right. Um, but I think you'd rather be on that side of things than to try to whip a slow horse to get it going, get it going, get it going. It's interesting when I talk to NBA teams or really any professional sports team, they all say, you know, I'm like, what do you value? And almost all of them say competitiveness. Yeah. Um, it's almost a starter, it's a starting point. Like, if that's not there, I don't know where we're going to go, so I think a lot of people would agree that whether that's something you learn when you're three years old, eight years old, or out of the womb, I don't think we really know, um, but I think you do want to nurture your
1: nature. It's funny that the, um, just with the NBA stuff, the competitiveness versus the upside, those mm. problems and those questions are always posed to these front office people because the upside is just what it is. It's upside. And a lot of times, guys with that chip on their shoulder who are competitive, who are talented, and who may also be specialists, which is, NBA is a specialty league. You have to do something elite. Traditionally, you have to do something very elite to stick. You may sneak in there, but if you're going to stick, you better be elite at something. It's just funny because the NBA, a lot of times, they err on the side of upside. And sometimes upside and competitive don't intersect at the point where, that upside pick ever becomes great.
0: Yeah, and I think potential often will show itself based on competitive spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's other factors as well, but I think competitive spirit is is a big one. And to your point, it's really hard to cultivate. Uh, you can create an environment, and there's certainly look like did Buzz bring in kids who are ultra competitive, or did he create an environment that did that? Right. I tend to think it's both of those. Sure, yeah, um,
1: they intersected somewhere.
0: Yeah, they intersect, and I think. You know, I think Golden State doesn't get enough credit for how competitive they are. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, Steph Curry is competitive as all hell. Clay Thompson, Draymond, you know, KD is competitive. They're they're competitive dudes. When they
1: win, and if they're winning by twenty, they want to win by twenty five. Yeah, they're not stopping. Twenty five, they won by thirty. Yeah, Yeah, and
0: and Steve Kerr, by the way, does it with a smile on his face. So like, um, I think that's all. That's all really interesting. I saw you this amazing experience at Georgetown, big time basketball. Uh, I also was curious about this. So you're at Georgetown and you're at Vandy. and look, both of them have good athletics. They're playing in big-time sports. And certainly Georgetown has a massive tradition of basketball. Even as a Syracuse alum, I can, I can mm-hmm. recognize it's that. Okay. And, and I grew up in the D.C. area, so I've got a soft, soft spot for the Jerome Williams with Harrington's and Don Reed's of the world. Um, yeah. But I'm curious, with the, being part of basketball at both of those schools, they're both such academic institutions and you sort of started to describe the typical Vandy kid and basically we could replace that with Georgetown and I think it would be a pretty similar type of kid. What did you see being part of basketball programs on that inclusive exclusive scale of things and you just got to probably observe a lot with how do these basketball players interact with the rest of the campus. Can you just talk about that a little bit?
1: Sure. Personality, you know, I always felt as though the kids with who are smart, who we could recruit to Vanderbilt or Georgetown, who had the personality. They they were the guys who really had the best whole experience at, you know, Vanderbilt or Georgetown. Even at USC now, same thing, you know. You really want to make the most of your entire college experience. You want guys who are motivated to play in the NBA and to win at a high level in college, but you also want guys who who just enjoy the day-to-day experience and not the experience of oh, I'm a celebrity on campus because I'm a student athlete. Just the experience of being around different people and going to class and learning and, you know, even something going to, going to lunch and hanging out and having a good time. So I always felt as though that we really hit the nail on the head when it came to just getting kids with good personalities. Jeff Green's smile, John Wallace, uh, Roy Hibbert's quirky personality, you know, all these guys, they really embraced – the university that they chose to play college basketball and study at. And I think that's important because Jeff, Roy, John, DeWan, these guys, Pat Ewing Jr., they, they all love Georgetown.
0: And you hit on something there, which is they're all probably really grateful to be there. They were glad to be there. Absolutely. And I'm sure you deal with this at a school like USC where you are getting big-time recruits there. You know, how do you deal with the idea of let's be where our feet are Let's be, well, we're at USC, which, by the way, is not a bad place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, let's be here while still understanding, like, yeah, I want to make it to that next level. Um, how do you manage that at a school like USC? Uh, look, the guys at Georgetown, I know Jeff and Roy didn't necessarily come in with uh, people touting them as NBA guys or Matt Frege as an NBA guy, but okay. at some point they're reading, like, hey, someone saying you're going to be a top first round pick or whatever it might be. How do you manage the notion of, hey guys, let's be where we are. And by the way, I see this at the high school level. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Where guys start wearing their, their college gear because they're committed or they're mm-hmm. seniors and you know, they're committed to USC or whatever school that they're going to and, and now they're not appreciating the high school experience. So how do you manage that sort of idea of, hey, I've got something really great coming in the future mm-hmm. but let's appreciate what, what we have right here right
1: now. You, you really want the kids you recruit you, if you're honest in the recruiting process throughout the whole time, obviously you want to build trust. That only happens over time. That doesn't happen the moment they commit. You want to build trust. But if you're honest with them the whole time and have them understand what your goals are for the program and every step of the way you're reinforcing those goals, um, it helps them embrace the – You know, because everyone's in such a rush to go to the MBA, but if they embrace the college part with your, and your, your honesty leads them to – Understand why you want them there and how you see them thriving under your tutelage. That kind of helps bring them into the family more so. You know it's harder now than ever because they're in basketball more than any other sport. It's a rush to get to the professional level. Now, you know in baseball you can leave. You know in high school. Um, you know obviously in soccer you can go to the youth academies, but in basketball once you step foot on campus a significant percentage of these student-athletes are thinking about when I can go to the NBA.
0: Well, and the Zach Collins of the world played at Gonzaga last year, mm-hmm. who's not necessarily thinking that, even though he is this highly touted right. guy, but they, you know, you're going to be a backup. Mm-hmm. We've got this stud center. Right. Uh, you know, he would talk about it. He's like, but eventually, it's like, I have to go. And, like, there's almost now an expectation that if you don't go after your freshman year, right. then you're not going to be a pro.
1: The more they see you, the more they pick at you. And I'm talking they being NBA scouts, yeah. NBA front offices. There is that fear in college basketball more so than any. Even though there's so many examples of guys who, who just reached their potential and kept working and then, they spent four years in college, and, hey, they're great college players and they're great pro players.
0: I've got to share this experience with you. So I've gone to the NBA Combine a few times with an NBA team and interviewed players at the Combine, and it is unbelievable the difference between a freshman and a senior. Incredible. I, people don't – we forget this. 18 years old, 19 years old versus 22, like the seniors are so much more self-aware uh, mm-hmm. Polished is a word that I would use. They are grateful. Um, their uh, belief in themselves uh, and who they are and their identity. I think. I think we forget that those four years even let's just take it outside of college are just times where we grow with our self-awareness and, really
1: grow up. and
0: it's not to say that a 19-year-old prodigy can't go to the NBA and, and crush it. They certainly can. Mm-hmm. And by the way, it's not to say that guys that don't go to college don't gain that in other aspects of their life but it is, it's, a, it's an amazing push-pull and uh, it's, it's fascinating to observe and the other interesting thing I was going to bring up to you was the, I've worked with NBA players and I've worked with NFL players. They love their college experience. Mm -hmm. And I have literally talked to rookies who are like, I would do anything to have another year in college. These guys are making millions of dollars. dollars. They have whatever they want. They bought mom a house. They Mm -hmm. bought a car. They did whatever. And a lot of them say to me, like, Brian, I really miss the camaraderie. I miss the idea of playing something bigger than myself. He's like, now it's, you know, that guy who's behind me on the bench is trying to get my job, or or I'm the 12th guy, and I'm trying to figure my way, and we're traveling, and this, that, and the other. And that's, by the way, not to say that they, look, we're not going to get into the NCAA paying players and all that other stuff, because that's a longer podcast. Mm -hmm. Maybe one day we'll get into that. But that's not to say the NCAA doesn't have serious flaws. Serious flaws, okay? But uh, the college experience is still immensely Valuable and special uh, and and anyone that 's going through college, whether you 're an athlete or not, knows that it 's a time away from your family you 're starting to build self awareness you 're starting to come up with your own ideas, uh, like I looked at Bronson Koenig and Nigel Hayes, and they were outspoken this year on a lot of things. but you know what that 's a time in their life where they 're exploring mm-hmm. and they 're learning and they 're growing, and they might make a mistake and they, but college creates an atmosphere. Where diversity of thought is so
1: valuable. Of course, on college campuses, it's it's
0: people forget the campus part. It's not these kids are college athletes and student athletes and. Look, that's not to say it's the same for everybody, uh, and that's not to say a student-athlete experience is the same as a uh, non-athlete experience, but um, there is true value there, and I I guarantee you. I I talked to a professional football player today who said, man, my college experience was awesome. Uh, It's very rare that they're like, man, I really hated my college experience. And that's the same for anybody. If we go to um, Marriott, And, you know, their corporate campus, everyone will talk about their college years fondly because it's personal growth. It's self-awareness. Away from home
1: for the first time. Yeah. Meeting people who are really unlike you more so than any other time of your life.
0: So, all right, we're going to go back to your journey. Okay. So, uh... I'm gonna skip over a couple pieces here. So sure. you go on to Princeton yep. to coach there. Uh, once again, a dummy school, right? Okay, like of you've hit Vanderbilt, you've hit Georgetown, you've hit Princeton. Mm-hmm. Like you know, you're hitting all the really dumb schools with kids that, you know, have terrible SAT scores and GPAs. they are kids that are really much dumber than me, to be honest. My Syracuse education. Um, <laughs> but uh, so you go there, then you go to Fairfield, Connecticut, mm-hmm. um, where you also get to, you know, interact with. Uh, pretty high-level basketball players, sure. uh, and now you're at USC. Mm-hmm. Um, as a coach, and you've had all these different stops along the way, but as a coach, can you talk about your mindset for preparation and then your mindset on game day? And just give us some insight into what it's like to be Martin uh, in practice or you know, on an off day versus the day of a game, what's your mindset like?
1: So, leading up to game, in terms of game preparation, very much intel-driven, information gathering, uh, film study. You know, your mindset is, I want to, leading up to the, let's just say we're playing UCLA on a Friday. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, we're in film study mode, information gathering mode. We're trying to prepare our team to be game ready on Friday. So if they see a certain action, they hear a certain call, we want them to be prepared to play the exact defense that we practiced and we talked about and filmed that entire week. So we're very much in preparation mode leading up to game day. And what that means is, as a coach, you need to be in a constant state of communication during your practice time, during your film time, leading up to that specific game educating your players, you know, it's, you're the professor for those practices leading up to the game, and you're teaching your guys what they need to be ready for, how they should prepare themselves for that game. Um, I just think about UCLA this year. We played them at home. Um, Tony Bland, our associate head coach, a really smart basketball mind, we, we deducted this game plan um, for Alonzo Ball, TJ Leaf, certain things. I'm not going to talk about what exactly we did, but We had to practice—we tweaked certain fundamentals that we preach leading up to the week to help us beat UCLA because we knew we had to do certain things differently, and it turned out it worked. But leading up to that UCLA game, which was actually on a short turnaround, um, we had to teach our guys. We had to take time and practice to talk about what we're doing and why, and I think that's the most important thing a coach can do. Uh, It's easy to tell the what. You know, you can watch a coaching DVD and know the what— but a lot of kids now need to know why in order for them to kind of be comfortable doing what you're asking them to do night in and night out. Why are we guarding Lonzo Ball this way? That's important um, because, yes, you want to take away Lonzo's three. Um, you want to not let him pass the ball up the sideline in transition for easy baskets because those, those are two of his biggest strengths. But it's really hard to do. He's a special talent. So you have to prepare and practice in a way where the guys understand why you need to do this and you need to show them time and time again in film and on the court what exactly that means so that on Friday you're ready to go.
0: You use the word teach a lot in that last answer. If we were to put teaching at a 1 and coaching at a 10, where would you see yourself on that scale?
1: Teaching at a 1 and coaching at a 10. I need further... I, I'm i kind of confused about what you're asking here. Yeah,
0: so I'll clarify because I Because I
1: believe I should probably be a 1. Closer to teaching. I think so.
0: Because so yeah, I would say if, if coaching's at a 10 and teaching's at a 1, do you want to be... You know, a 10 would be co- I'm a coach, a 5 would be I'm somewhat of a teacher, somewhat of a coach, or right. 1 would be I'm a teacher.
1: Oh, okay. So then, now that makes sense more. Well, I think... I, I've always seen the two as intersecting at all points. You know, I... I view being a coach, being a professor on the court for the student-athletes. That's how I see it. You know, we're educating them, except we're just focusing on basketball. Um, We're trying to provide life lessons, which you kind of don't get from your professors, you know, in your normal classes. But, you know, so that's where the coaching side comes into play. The teaching side is the X's and O's, um, the behavioral stuff, making sure your guys are on top of their studies. And and so that's that's an interesting... I don't want to say a five. I think I'm probably, probably a three or a four then. Closer I'm very, to
0: teacher than coach. Yeah, I
1: want because I, I, want, yeah, I, I, want, I, I want to educate these guys on the court. Yeah. That's what I want to do. But, you know, great professors, though, they have the coaching aspect too because great professors, you know, you think about your favorite college professor. I know who mine was, John English from the communications department at Vanderbilt. You know, it wasn't just all teaching, it, you know, it was, it was like, oh, we actually had great synergy and we spent time together outside of the classroom and we both had very similar personalities, outgoing personalities. So I think the balance is important, but I've always viewed the court as as my classroom.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's kind of a loaded question, um, but like the way I also think about teachers are like, look, like a teacher's going to teach, teach, teach and they're going to test. Mm-hmm. And while you're taking the test, they're not giving you the answers. You right. have to come up with them yourself. A well, coach, like, for you guys, if you're on the sideline and you see something mm-hmm. in the test, which is the game, like, you're going to give them the answer at the mm-hmm. timeout or whatever sure. it's going to be. And I always say, like, teachers should have a little more coach in them, and coaches maybe should have a little more teacher in them. Um, so it's just a, an interesting concept that I think a lot about.
1: Yeah, and, I, I, and, you know, that balance is really important because it's all education, you know just in different ways we're just educating young people to you know as a coach it's mostly basketball but then you know that's very important for just overall growth of the young people you're working with day in and day out
0: all right so i'd be remiss if i didn't bring up you know a massive moment in your life um and you know feel free to share as much or as little as you want but this is called beyond the surface so um I want to just unpack, you know, you losing your sister mm-hmm. and um, what that experience is like for you, uh, where you are today with it. Um, and the reason I think it's important is, A, there are people that go through tragedy that will listen to this. Uh, and not to say their tragedy is your tragedy, but mm-hmm. and look, this is life and it's real. And um, so just talk about that experience uh, and how that impacted you. Um, and I'll just leave it open-ended for you to, to riff on that, as, as much or as little as you want.
1: Thank you. Um, you know, my family's tragedy surrounds the passing of my sister, uh, Madeline Bahar, at the age of 25 in February of 2009. She, she, suffered, she died from a, um, a rare disease called plasma cell leukemia, which often affects men in their 60s. Uh, she was a young woman, 25 years old. Uh, I remember when when I got a call from Sibley Hospital, um, two missed calls from Sibley Hospitals while well. I was at a friend's house, um, one spring day, and uh, it was you know eventually realized it was my dad and he told me to come over and um, diagnosis wasn't good. You know Maddie was a went to Bullis, Bullis alum, went to Kenyon College. She played basketball at Kenyon one year, had a great experience at Kenyon College in Gambier Ohio. Great person, beautiful heart, beautiful spirit very accepting and loving and you know obviously I'm my own person but her passing and her spirit is you know it's motivated me to to live my life as much as she was living her life on earth Um, and so February 2009 she passed away after a short 10-month battle with plasma cell leukemia really devastated our family certainly the darkest of times, obviously seeing her suffering and then being there the night she passed. And we really loved Maddie. She was a beautiful soul. She she cared about others. She was a very selfless, generous with her time to less fortunate. She's someone who you just, I know my parents were really proud they raised her to be the woman she was. Um, since her passing in 2009, my family's worked directly with the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And we started Maddie's team, which is a Fundraising with the Light the Night Walk, which is the LLS's annual walk uh, against blood cancer, which goes towards blood cancer research and patient care. And since Maddie's team incep- Maddie's team's inception in 2009, we've raised over 175 thousand uh, dollars for blood cancer research and patient care, all in Maddie's name. And so, we usually walk in the Rockville, Maryland walk, but these walks occur across the entire country. So. When my family moved to Los Angeles two years ago, uh, we continued to fundraise for Maddie's team, but we just walk when we're in Los Angeles because they have an annual walk at LA Live. And that's, you know, the LLS has really provided our family an opportunity to publicly show our love and, um, for Maddie and how much we miss her and to support a beautiful cause because, you know, you, it's, there's so many different cancers which affect others, and um, our battle... Uh, was with leukemia, and it's the it's the uh, LLS is who we support in their fundraising endeavors to help other people avoid um, an ending like Maddie had. We know we want other people to be able to fight to to have opportunities to survive, and a lot of people have survived. And what we want to do is just continue to fundraise, bring awareness, and to continue to walk year in and year out in her name because she was a beautiful person. You knew her. Um, growing up she played basketball in the girl side a year above us she went to wayside like you and i and she's from potomac like you and i and she's really someone special who we think of every single day and to lose a sibling um to those out there who have experienced that you know it's a, it's a pain you really it's it feels insurmountable because you know now i'm a father now i'm married and you know, my sister didn't get to experience any of that with uh, me and with my family now, and it's it's really heartbreaking. But, you know, anytime I come back to Potomac, we visit her at uh, St. Francis Church in Potomac, and and you know we're thinking about her endlessly. And so, Maddie's team is really just an amazing way for us to to honor her memory.
0: Well, I'll tell you, I, I went to that funeral, and the amount of people—I mean, the church—it was incredible. <laughs> it was just overflowing, and. Um, you know, your sister got the tall jeans. That's, that's yeah. what I remember most. Yeah, like, looking up at Maddie and yeah. uh, but um, it was it was truly a remarkable ceremony. And I want to just end with that, which is to give you a platform to yeah, promote you. what you're doing, um, all the great work every year. Uh, Mar- Martin's p- promoting and trying to raise money. So uh, for those listening, uh, when he does that I usually retweet or I'm not a big Facebook liker but I try to like on Facebook and uh, if you feel uh, you know touched by that at all please feel free to support Martin so Martin if they want to find out more about the walk is there a place that they can do that sure. or a website and then also Well, I'll give you just a platform. If people want to follow you on Twitter and and sort of follow your career, uh, let's use this time to do both of those.
1: Yeah. Well, before going on, I would just say that whatever you're passionate about in terms of philanthropy or helping others, um, be the Pied Piper for that cause. I mean, I think it's important. You know, we're all lucky. You have a beautiful family. We all have beautiful families. Um, we're all successful in our own ways. But, you know, there's less fortunate people who are struggling in various avenues. And I just, I can't help, you know, I'm passionate about fighting leukemia because that affected my family. But if you're passionate about other things to help others, be vocal about that. You know, let's, you know, we need to have more of a helping hand for one another in this world. And there's people who are well off. Um, who can do things to help others who aren 't as well off and I think that 's important
0: I think it 's one of the beauties of what we were complaining about earlier, which is social media has created this opportunity to crowdfund and Absolutely. and and just you know get it out there and um look like uh the ice bucket challenge like mm-hmm. i I actually wrote something on Facebook because it bothered me a little bit that people were so promotional with uh what they 're doing, but at the end of the day, people are just trying to do good, and the amount of good that I think this generation can do and is doing I do think that there is more passion about doing good in our society today um, and I think look if if that means that they're taking a selfie while they're doing good who really cares mm-hmm. they're doing good Absolutely. Um, so I think part of the social media opportunity is the opportunity to spread doing good work and, and like you said I think just by being born in this country, I mean, your dad was born in a much different country than, than where he lives today. Um, Just by being born here, we are fortunate. Uh, We are privileged. Uh, Just by waking up in the US, and that's not to say that everybody has the same situation or dynamic, but there is amazing opportunity that we have here that doesn't exist in other countries, and that's just, that's reality, and we do have an obligation to try to make the world a better place, and uh, without getting too preachy, um, yeah, I think doing good is is something, look, a lot of this podcast about how you do well, Mm -hmm. and I think, Doing good is highly underrated, and I think for those of us that do good, uh, you know, I can make an argument that doing good is actually more important than doing well. And I like how you said, you know, all of us are successful; it just depends how you define success. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think we can, we're all capable of doing good. Um, there's nothing to stop a man or a woman uh, or anyone from doing good in this world. So uh, I appreciate you sharing your story and you know being vulnerable enough to share the darkest of times, as you called it. For you and your family, and um, if people want to follow you on on Twitter or, or learn more about the society, where can they go ahead and do that? Yeah,
1: I'm, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. MshoneBahar Bahar, M S H O N E Bahar, B A H A R. Um, can keep up to date with my family, but also you know USC basketball. We're doing some great things right now under Andy Enfield. Uh, set the school record for wins last year, 26 wins, and return entire roster to a lot of hype this year. So. We're gonna to have to manage expectations and get the most out of this group, but we're really excited to do it. And uh, anytime anyone's in Los Angeles and their friends and family and listeners of Brian Levinson, they're more than welcome.
0: And leukemia and lymphoma—is that just go onto their website? I mean, they're, everyone pretty much knows. Yeah, you can, can
1: Google Light the Night Walk. You know, we're on Facebook now, Facebook.com/slash Maddie's Team. You can Google Maddie's Team and Leukemia and Lymphoma Society? But we're fundraising pretty much year-round. Our walk is in October. Uh, If you're in the D.C. area, New York, L.A., Chicago, cities across the United States, you can partake in the walk. Um, You can fundraise if you like. It's a great cause. But like I said before, whatever you're passionate about, whatever causes you really care about, be vocal about that and, and do your part to help others.
0: Well, I want to end by saying like there are times over the last hour or so that we've been talking that I've had flashbacks of <laughs> seeing like young Martin and both of our hairlines are uh, are are being lost and Martin yeah. Martin's rocking a little beard right now. He's got salt a little, and pepper, a little salt and pepper going yeah, got on seasoning with uh, mine. yeah. I think both of us are, are aging not quite like fine wine, but maybe we are. I don't know. Uh, but it's been fun. We had a lot of give and goes, pick and rolls. Um, you know, a lot of great memories, and I have memories of running through the halls of elementary school with you and uh, you know running around uh, our neighborhood and uh, it is it's a I had somebody else on this podcast talk about that they're still in touch with a lot of friends that they had from camp or from their elementary school and you know I, I think you know having friends that long is special and I certainly don't take it for granted and I think our worlds have collided even more since we've both been so involved in basketball and I really count that as a blessing and I'm extremely grateful that our worlds get to collide like this. And when you're home, I get to rope you into the office and, and, <laughs> and get to chat with you. And hopefully next time you come back, we'll do it again. And, and maybe we'll talk about some of the other things that we weren't able to get to today.
1: No, this is really fun. And, uh, you know, good luck out here. And my family will be uh, listening from across the country in Los Angeles. Sounds good. Thanks, Martin. Thanks, Brian.